Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11, 1. When I first found out that I was HIV positive, all my dreams and my hope was shattered. I was worried about what was going to become of me, my children, how am I going to tell my mother? The best way is if I kill myself. The news comes like a stone falling. Suddenly all light is gone. Outside the heat is black as loss. Tomorrow is a burden. I speak the words into the air. No one answers. The sky is a dull plate of silences. Tomorrow is a heavy load. My feet move sluggishly, every sound muted to a drone. It is hard to dream these days. And oh, the tears, the tears. I didn't really know the difference between HIV and AIDS. I just know that I went over to the clinic and I tested positive for AIDS and I'm going to die now. I asked myself, why me? Why do I have to be positive? This treachery of the blood is a secret rushing through me and my face is a mask no one must read beyond its inscrutable dumbness. No one must know. I cannot read the faces around me. Everyone seems filled with hope. How ordinary life must be for them. What secrets do they carry in this city of dust, exhaust, and the clamor of engines? There is no substance in the things I dream of these days. The news came like a stone falling, and I can't find my way back to peace. This is the antithesis of hope the calculus of sudden and terrible news. This dreadful disease. A mother is supposed to be there for their children. What is going to become of them now that I'm HIV positive? My name is Kwame Dawes. I'm a poet and a writer. I was born in Ghana and grew up in Jamaica. There are two Jamaicas. There's the Jamaica that the tourists know, that many Americans know. That's the Jamaica of the North Coast, of the beaches, the waterfalls, the all-inclusive hotels, the partying. But there's a second Jamaica, that is the Jamaica on the South Coast. It's the Jamaica of Kingston. It is the Jamaica in which people live day-to-day, -day, eking out a living. It's a Jamaica that knows wealth, it also knows poverty, it knows violence, but it also has a brash, smart energy. It is where the music is created in Jamaica. And it is in this Jamaica that I've returned to explore the issue of HIV AIDS. Well, in Jamaica, we have a population of approximately 2.6 million people. And we estimate approximately 25,000 persons living with HIV. And maybe a bit over a half of them are not aware that they're living with HIV. I think particularly because Jamaica is such a Christian society and we believe in Bible and punishment and what have you, sex and sin and death, it's all tied up. You know, if you have sex, you're gonna die. And now AIDS has just come to confirm that. It's that link between sex and death that I think feeds into that brimstone and fire 
psyche that many of us have. However deeply hidden, you know, it kind of feeds into that. It's a punishment. Based on our history and our culture, sex begins at an early age. Multiple sexual partnerships are not unusual. The popular perception by some groups outside of Jamaica is that Jamaica is known to be a homophobic environment. And, and that has come largely through a reaction to some of the songs by the DJs, this is the dance hall DJs, who in some of their lyrics have really kind of virulent and violent statements about homosexuals and what should be done to homosexuals, and, and none of it is good. And it's almost in the dance hall scene, expected, you have to do your anti-homosexual song as a kind of rite of passage or as a necessary thing. And they're hugely popular in the dance hall. They're always saying that it's the dirty ones or the careless ones, the ones that live their life reckless. They're always saying that it's um, gay person get it. And I know that I wasn't gay, so how did I get it? And then I started query, is my child father gay? It could not be because he has, he has been in relationship with female that I know about. No, no, no. There's no question that this weird contradiction exists, that there is a lively gay community in Jamaica. So that's one side of the things that fascinated me about trying to understand what is happening there and trying to communicate to people that it's more nuanced than just saying, this is an island where people are just homophobic for, you know, just for the sake of it. When you talk to people, for them, okay, maybe it's not a gay disease anymore. We've kind of gotten over it, kind of, if you're a man and have it, there still become questions about your sexuality, but we, we, we know it's not just gays who have it. But many people still have the underlying belief, no matter how much information you give them, that it's certain kinds of people, you know, you have to be wild and crazy in your sexual behaviors or at least have multiple partners. And few people accept that multiple means more than one. 60 to 70% of the new contractions of HIV AIDS are with women which has been true in sub-Saharan Africa, it's been true in places like South Carolina, it's been true in, in other parts of the Caribbean. It's very much now becoming a, a disease for women who are heterosexual. They're not using a condom. They don't like it, it itch, they're allergic. Um, baby, I just want to feel the real you. You girls will get these lines. Mom, but that's not sex, you know? Artificial sex, let's have real sex, skin to skin. And girls will believe this. And they'll have unprotected sex with them simply because they fear losing them. I knew something of Anisha's story before I met Anisha. And what I knew of her story was that she was the poster child for HIV AIDS in Jamaica and for surviving it and for living with HIV AIDS in Jamaica. Well, that puzzled me and it made me think, what would make a girl or a woman 
in Jamaica in 2007 take the chance of going up front and admitting to the whole world that she's HIV positive. I knew initially that there must have been an element of bravery there. I knew that I was in one fateful relationship with my child's father. I wasn't a girl that was running around and I knew that he was the one who gave it to me. And she was first diagnosed with HIV having discovered that she was HIV positive from somebody who was at the funeral of her, her then living boyfriend, a man who was about 47 years old when he died. And he had been murdered. And the rumor was that he had been murdered because he had given HIV to the sister of the man who actually killed him. And this was a, this was a revenge killing. My child's father was killed. It's some person says that he was killed because he infected someone and their family decided to retaliate. But it's only he and that person can know the real truth of what happened. I never really query into it much. I just know that I have this thing and my whole life and all my dreams have been shattered. No, I have to make her write about change. I have to turn around my life. Anisha's story I found to be a series of ups and downs, moments when you thought things could change in this inexorable march towards tragedy that often affects poor people who live in Jamaica. Uh, at one moment she's, she grows up abused, sexually abused from age seven until she's about 11 or 12 by her stepfather. And then she's rescued from that and taken to Ghana, West Africa, where it looks like she's going to do something fantastic with her life. She goes to Achimota School, the most prestigious high school in Ghana. And then she comes back to Jamaica and falls into a relationship with a man who is three times her age, and he gives her HIV. And then through that journey through HIV, she comes back into this world where she's a well-known person, her faces on billboards and she has a message to give. You're, you say you love dance and things. Yeah. You still go dance and so. Sometimes my mother and my uncle are, they will say, Dad, I want to tell you. But I tell them that there's going to be a time when I won't be able to dance anymore. And I will dance. Dance. Beanie Man in a white fedora, his legs, all legs as he steps like a king across the stage. Head held back, fist to mouth, scattershot lyrics, gruff as any bedroom bully. And a girl can forget her worries, can blank out the bellies groaning, can feel like a girl child again, not no baby mother thrice over with no answers for tomorrow. Can silence the whisper of the disease in her blood, Hold down her waistline and dance away the gloom. Lord, dance inside the boom of the sound system. Dance with this long, maga black man in his white tux commanding all and sundry to grind their waistline. And what else to do but dance, baby? Sweat it out. Find back the sweet spot in the waistline where it is watery and gummy. Feel clean again. Feel fresh again. Feel rude again. While the city shimmers with its million souls trying to make all sorrow fade away, sweet Lord. Sorry. 
You're listening to Live Hope Love. Sometimes I just sit down and I cry because I know they don't, they don't. What they are expecting of me, I have to live up. I have to live up to it. Everybody is going to look at the life that you live. If you're going to practice what you preach. Anisha had to step down from the position of being this media figure because she had gotten pregnant while she was going around doing work, talking about abstinence and so on. I was in a relationship. The person was also HIV positive like me. Somehow when I tell them that the condom birthday does not bite, they believe that I was practicing unprotected sex. So at one point, my job was in jeopardy because it was like saying that, well, you're out there on this old thing and the tagline was, I use a condom every time. And I was trying to let them know that the tagline says, getting on with life. So I was like, I know I have done my wrong, and I know I have made my mistake, and everybody makes mistakes in life. Nobody is perfect. There seemed to be a double standard about the expectations of her, and the double standard was that she was trying to live her life, and she had taken all the precautions, but she had gotten pregnant but she wondered whether others would be treated the same way as she was. That is, a woman who was married, who was living with HIV and working in this area, um, would have been treated the same way as she was if they found out that this woman had gotten pregnant. And in a sense, I think, I think she has a point there. I was hurt because I knew my job was in jeopardy. That was when they decided to take me out of the school because at the time I was preaching abstinence to young people. And I look back at myself and said, yes, I'm preaching abstinence to young people. That does not say that I can't get on with my life. This is me and my partner and I made a decision to keep the child. Making ends meet. 
She sells box juice every day, down by the terminus in Spanish town, to make ends meet, get a little something for school lunch and bus fare for her big daughter, whose body is like hers, skinny like breeze would blow her away. Tall hair, high bottom, nice shape. Sometimes it come in like they are sisters when they step their way through the muddy pothole and mar lanes of Portmore's blighted streets. And same way, the men are always asking for a double mint slam with two schoolers. And she knows how to smile, kiss her teeth, and drag her big daughter along. The girl now wearing same short frock and halter top her mother wears. And mother know it's a matter of time before she starts show belly, though she warn her daily, but girl is girl. And this Jamaica is a rough place with man who will lay wait you, sweet talk you, offer you bus fare and food money each day, and sometimes he might buy you a nice shoes, just a matter of time. And what her mother, who hustling a two-cent selling box juice and icing men down by the terminus in her fade-out denim skirt and broken-down clog shoes, with the fabric mangy to nothing where her tough heel must rub every time she step, can offer to this girl who start to smell herself, start to want things. Fifty dollars for a bag of ice. The rest is the heat and dust of the city to make people thirsty, make them buy. Ever since she tests positive, nothing won't go right for her. It come in like a curse to blight her day. Big woman like this depend on her mother for clothes money, for some dollars to buy pads and panty. What a life. Man is like death to her. Man just take and take, and all them leave is trouble. Man is like the grave to her. She see them coming and run. Man is like a curse on her with sweet mouth and lies. And all she have is her box juice, her $50 ice, some icy mint and a smile just to make ends meet day by blessed day. started with about two persons, then three, and we, we gradually build on that. And just by having them being in a room where they can exhale and be themselves, they have to hide and be fearful. And just by having them coming twice a month and meeting, sharing their experiences, and realize that, hey, I'm not alone in this thing. There's so many of us. The greatest challenge I have is in the individual persons acknowledging their risk. It's not just for HIV, for any STI, to get them to acknowledge the risk, take responsibility. Because it must be human nature that we keep blaming other people for our problems. I'm not saying it's not my, it's my fault and I'm not saying it's the other person's fault because I'm supposed to take responsibility for myself. So it's both of us. Because if I was protecting myself, I wouldn't end up with it. So I can't put all the blame on him. I wanna rule my destiny. Oh yeah, I and I, 
been coming to Jamaica very regularly ever since I left. And um, you, you, you engage the country, you engage people. I've met many people who I remain convinced are courageous. I've also met people who have reminded me about the resilience of Jamaicans to survive and to struggle to survive um, in difficult times. I've met people who have used what is their sickness to create something useful for themselves. Working system, got nothing you can worry about. Yeah, and, and change this life to better way. Got it so free. When your mams and dad forsake you, yes, I know the Lord will take you, take you home and set you free. Never make you meet in misery. I'm so glad to be in your way. Baby, can you see the night is getting cold? There's someone there to keep me warm. Yes, I can't, but nothing more. Show the light in bright way. But I can't secret you every day. So before I say, oh, my, 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 my. I have known people who have died. You know, and it is it is a it is a loss. It is a loss, and it's particularly when it's young people. And but I've seen people live. I've seen people live. I've seen, seen people come back from death's door. You know, amazingly, absolutely amazingly. And it, it really is a, a tribute to the individual spirit. Yes, medication. Yes, all these other things have their place. But also, it's a tribute to when you see people living with HIV. So HIV AIDS has had this really weird kind of place in the imagination, both one of horror, a sense that this becomes a, a kind of irrevocable sentence to you, and yet one of hope, where we get instances of people who've managed to, to, to live with this disease and so on. My questions are about how people have, have dealt with it and have lived with it as, as well. You know, there are people I've grown up with, I grew up with in Jamaica, who have, I know have died of, 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 of HIV AIDS. And it was never said that that's, that's the disease that, that, that killed them in public. So I know that there's, there was a kind of veil, a shroud of, of, of secrecy about it and, and some kind of shame about it. So I'm asking questions about issues that um, I don't think are entirely public, but I'm also discovering that there's a public face to HIV AIDS. The face that is presented of HIV is usually of the poor, the poor and the uneducated. And so that perpetuates this myth that they are the people who have it. It's, it's concentrated in that area. But it's a challenge that we have, which is why you have to give give special recognition to people like Rosie Stone for coming out, being willing to come out and say, listen, when women, middle class, professional women, look and see her, they're seeing themselves. And it's, it's bringing home to you that it could be you. They, they have this um, Dare to Care Children's Home in Spanish Town, where there were some HIV positive children who were there. I had read to a little boy who was HIV positive it was very, very rewarding personally for me because I 
showed them the book. I read a little part of it. I told them that I was HIV positive and that my husband, I got it from my husband. And we talked about the story and what have you. But afterwards, after the session was finished, and the people at the children's home, they were taking me around to show me where they lived and so on, all of that. I heard a little talking in the, in the, um, in the corner and one little boy was saying, yes, she has the same thing like me, she has the same thing. And he said, no, 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 she couldn't have, look how she look. She couldn't have the same thing. And, and the one was saying to the other one, well, ask her, not ask her. And I said, yes, man, you can ask me anything. And when I called, I said, yes, you come and I'll show you the book. He said, miss, you don't have the same thing like them. And I said, yes, I do. And, and he said, I don't believe you. I said, well, come and look. And I showed them the book and I told them and what have you. And he was so, and, and the little boy now that was in the session here now, same thing I tell you, she has the same thing like me. And for me, that was enough. I said to myself, if I can help one person and one little person to feel a little better about being ill with HIV, I, that's all the agony and the, the self-doubt and all the things that went into the book, it would have been worthwhile. We spoke with Rosie Stone, whose book I've been reading. She's from a, a middle-class, prominent family, and her husband, who died of HIV-AIDS, Carl Stone, was a massive figure in, in Jamaica until today. Rosie Stone is, is tested and she has contracted the disease a week after he's been tested. At, at that time, I forgave Carl immediately. In the book, I say, he asked me about wearing my wedding band, like, why I'm not wearing it. And, and that began the conversation. So I said, you shouldn't be speaking about wedding band. We, we have a crisis on our hands. And I don't know what I what 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 to, what to think. And I told him that I needed some honesty from him, from in order for me to rationalize in my mind that I needed to stay in this house, in this marriage. And I told him that over the years I had thought about different women, but of course didn't think that it was <laughs> it was really true. But now that there is a diagnosis of HIV, I have to wonder. So I was going to ask him, I was going to call the names of the women, and he would say yes or no to it. And then I was crying so much, and he was too. But I, I did it, I called Mary, he said yes, no, whatever, and we went through it. And then afterwards, I don't know if you, if you, if you know about pain, that is like a physical pain. When somebody says yes and yes, it's like somebody punch, <laughs> punch you in the heart. And so after that, I went into the bathroom. I went into the bathroom and turned on the shower and sat in there and just cried and cried and howled and everything. And then I, after, that was about, it probably took about 20 minutes or so. And after that, when I came out, I, I really felt cleansed in my mind of the whole horror of infidelity. And so I just, that's when I decided that I was going to be, I, I, I forgave him. And so after that, I could look after him. I suppose if I didn't have a sense of self of who I was apart from my marriage and apart from Carl, it could kill me. <laughs> 
but you, you, you definitely need it. At the time, I didn't realize it. That, that, that was probably why I survived. Because if I, if, 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 if I was totally wrapped up or defined myself by my marriage, then I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't have a self. I married Carl because I was passionately in love with him. I don't know how many friends and family understand that. I've had a fulfilling life with him, even though he has been a difficult man to live with. I have always understood him, and that has made life with him satisfying and comfortable, despite my ranting and raving. That's the part that that's the first time I've been able to read it. Unforgiveness. One. Nothing like the surety of death to make a skinny, short man's open hand seem like dust, an empty weight on the skin. Look at him. Garbadine suit flopping about his scrawny legs, loose shirt tail hanging, and the pride of chains, rings, chaparitas. He's dying too. The same treachery in her blood makes him as ordinary as dirt. Two. One year now since she gave up the stone in her belly, swelling into grotesquery, a universe of errors. One year now since the gurgle and greed of his mouth pulling at anything suckable. One year now since the confession that his fainting, his vomiting, his skin curdling, his aids in his skin. One year now since she heard the news of the end of her life. And now no one speaks. No one has words to offer her. No one can console. Three, look at this short man, ruler of his kingdom of worms, reduced to this preening graveyard, a man hustling some change so he can eat from day to day, a man who will sit and stare into the sky, his eyes empty of meaning, a man pleading for her mercy while she eats her own meal in front of him, a puppy begging for a morsel, but she hisses her teeth, leaves him sniveling. It is easy to be cold like this. Four. So this is the equation of death. She fears nothing. She laughs at his vanishing body rising with violence, and she watches as he crumbles to tearful nothing. At least once, the fear was part of the sweetness, the assurance that something firm was anchoring her. This is the way death simplifies things. Death will take us all. She knows this all too well. And her single prayer is to be there, to see him ask for his last sip of water, to be able to take the glass brimming with white light, and let it spill like libation into the earth before his bewildered eyes. Mm -hmm.
The thing is, they know it, and the others are busy nursing the dying. I will live to see the wasting of my flesh. My last breath will be in a calm season. They will know my sins, every betrayal, those I killed, those whose voices whisper to me until tears come, until I pray to slip away like night, a frail man limping towards morning light. Kingston, settles on your skin, the great of wood fire and exhaust on your body. You know, see, you're listening to Live Hope Love. This trip has been especially about the way in which the disease affects lives, the way that people cope with that disease. And it's actually a kind of poem about the way in which people deal with the prospect of death in the context of Jamaican society. Because it's a society that encounters death at high levels, people are constantly negotiating the idea of what it means to be here and not here tomorrow. Coffee break. It was Christmas time. The balloons needed blowing. And so in the evening we sat together to blow balloons and tell jokes. The cool air off the hills made me think of coffee. So I said, coffee would be nice. And he said, yes, coffee would be nice. And smiled as his thin fingers pulled the balloons from the plastic bags. So I went for coffee. And it takes a few minutes to make the coffee, though I did not know if he wanted cow's milk or condensed milk. And when I came out to ask him, he was gone. Just like that, in the time it took me to think, cow's milk or condensed. The balloon sat lightly on his still lap. Montego Bay is a bustling, congested city, which looks like a country town, but it's massive, and its population is second only to Kingston. So the streets are extremely narrow. The houses are close against the street. People live literally on the street, so you're negotiating people. It has a maze of one-way traffic. You see school kids jumping into taxis and so on. It's an energetic town. And we, we drove through the town and then moved up into the hills to the Hope Hospice, which was created to serve primarily people who are HIV AIDS. At least some of them are at the last stages of the disease and finding ways to cope and so on. What we need is Hope's Hospice for John Mazuka. These days, the language of death is a dialect of betrayals. The bodies broken, placid as saints, hobble along the tiled corridors from room to room. 
Below the dormitories is a white squat bungalow, a chapel from which the hand claps and choruses rise and reach us like the scent of a more innocent time. I am trying to listen to the plump Palestinian man with his swaying rural middle-class patois. When, when people get to this stage of accepting, I don't know, it was just, you, you'd walk into the place and not know it's a hospice, the crowd will be laughing. This jovial servant, his eyes watering at the memory of an 11-year-old girl brought to die inside the white walls and cheap fabric of this place. Her small body fading, her eyes fiercely flaming with light, with hunger for wide open spaces, decades of discovery. Her mind is still unable to calculate the treachery of rape, to grasp how a man can seek revenge on her tender body. Why, as he wept when they took him away, she wept too, like the day she wept when they took her mother's body away, the disease leaving her with nothing but bones, thin skin, the scent of chickens. She had a level of acceptance that I've never seen in an 11-year-old. So she knew she was dying. But everybody else was grieving for her, but she was so happy. And she kept saying that she wanted to die on Christmas Day, and she did. She, she, she passed on Christmas Day. There is refuge, I know, in distraction. The chapel of charms down the hill, the pure sound of my youth. When cleansed by the perpetual blood, my sins were never legion enough for despair. When the comfort of the Holy Spirit was green as this sloping escarpment, thick with trees, cool against the soft sunlight, these things she saw before her body could not cope anymore. Her laughter, her laughter. There have been times when, you know, you, you, you go to church and you try and do what is right, but if I did catch up, you know, so all those things, in the long run, when they're happening, they might hurt, but, but they're really a blessing to their lessons and all of that for, for all of us, you know. The plump man brushes the gleam of tears from his cheeks. I think of the simple equations of compassion. I think of songs, the accordion, the strained harmonies, the bodies of the dying shuffling past, eyes still hoping, the van waiting in the shade to take me from all of this the long ride through rain and dark to Kingston, to sleep and more sleep. John Marzuka, co-administrator of the hospice. Our patients come to us from the hospital. The police will bring people in, or relatives, people who live in the community and know somebody who is ill will refer them to us. In the beginning, people just came here to die. So the medication really wasn't effective. We have had Probably over 500 patients passed through here since 1997. In the beginning, as much as a dozen people would die each week. 
even in the days where there was a lot of suffering and death, there was a lot of laughter also. There's, there's a, a young man I always remember. His name was Noel. And it was near the end. And very emaciated. Couldn't eat anything. And he loved mangoes. And of course, something like mango gave him the runs. And so we, we had gotten some mango. Somebody brought us a whole heap of mango. We had given out to others, but we didn't give any to Noel. But he stayed in his room and he could smell the mangoes. So um, in the pot where he said, you have mango out there? I said, well, yes, but you know you can. He said, eh, eh, bring me mango. Because if I eat it, I'm going to die. And if I don't eat it, I'm going to die. So bring the mangoes. So we gave him the mangoes and, you know, you deal with it afterwards. You know, a lot of little things, you know, um, brought a lot of laughter and humor to the home, which sometimes people couldn't understand. You know, they couldn't understand. One of the things that really sustained me too is that you cannot just read your Bible and, and then go home. You have to do something. You have to live it. Cleaning. After a while, you don't bother with the brief and the pajamas. You leave him on the sheet and make him shit himself. Then shift over to the other side until you can come, lift up the body, wipe his bottom with a soft cotton cloth, bundle up the sheet with two more in the corner, straighten out the plastic over the mattress. Sometimes you have to wipe it too. Then put a towel under him until the other sheet dry. And all the time you don't say a word. You don't ask for nothing. You let your hand brush against your father's back and pray his dignity will last another day. This is how a man must care for his father, quiet, casual, and steady. People have, especially the workers, have been relieved of that burden, that, that mourning sense of, of, of the constant loss because they see people recovering and they see people um, surviving and, and living their lives. So there's a, there's a hope that, that is tempered by the knowledge that it, it, it's, it's, it's only a partial hope. When we look at where we're coming from, I think that we have been really blessed. When you look at what other countries' statistics have been like, from day one, Jamaica has been making an effort to control and contain the spread of HIV. And I think that has been a major factor. Barbados, Trinidad, Bahamas, all of them were higher than us because we have been out there fighting. I mean, we have all the social problems, we have all the poverty, we have all the things that should be pushing it up and yet we have managed to control it. Now, I would say we've made tremendous progress. We've been able to put over 3,500 people on treatment. We have noticed in the last few years that the death rate has declined. So we know persons living with AIDS um, who are on treatment are having a much more healthy, productive life, living longer. 
We've been able to reduce transmission from mother to child. Previously, before we had the drugs, one in four children born to a woman who was HIV infected would in turn be infected. Now we've reduced that to less than 10% and we're trying to get it to below 5%. The antiretroviral treatment or medication has given HIV-positive persons such great hope beyond the imagination. Because usually when they're diagnosed with HIV, it is considered a death sentence. In fact, I think some of them, for the first time, are really concentrating on themselves, taking care of themselves, and seeing some of them have bloomed and blossomed beyond a higher level than they were before HIV. Much fewer children are dying from HIV, so there has been progress there. We've been able to change sexual behavior to a great extent. Stigma has reduced as well, but we still have a tremendous challenge to ensure that the stigma is removed entirely, that people are more comfortable disclosing their status, and also that we really reach especially the vulnerable groups and ensure that they're practicing safe sex. So we still have a lot of work to do. The reason why I stopped taking the medication, I am tired of taking a lot of pills. I feel that like I can do it on my own without the tablets. And sometimes the tablets, they taste very bad. And you just tired of knowing that you have to take this tablet every day, every day around the clock. And it gives you a lot of side effects. Side effects, sometimes you feel a lot of pain in your chest. Sometimes a pain in your side. Sometimes you have to be going and they are checking for kidney problem, heart problem other things like that. And I don't want to be testing, testing all the time. That means I will try as much as possible to eat right. If I feel sick, I'll go to the doctor, but I will know that I won't be getting ARV. I'll be getting antibiotic. There's, there are lots of discussions about um, the advantages of having the medication and all that kind of thing, but I think People underestimate how difficult life is even with the medication and how painful it can be with the medication. Those who are on medication, you have to tell them that you have to take your medication on time and you have to give them the lowdown. If you don't take your medication, your body won't be able to fight off infection. But you who is in the shoes of HIV, they don't know what I am going through to taking the tablets. They just can tell you that to take it, to take it, but they don't know. Bad days is like, sometimes you are very sick. Sometimes you feel that you're tired of the discrimination. You're trying to fight it one way and it's out there another way. This is one of the bad days. How cool it's broken you. 
trying to mask the knowing wit behind your eyes. Every smile, brilliant against your gleaming black face, is defiance. You stammer, push out words, tell your story, slap your knees to show where your stroke-frozen body would crawl across the concrete to reach the yard with the gawking onlookers. You laugh. Man must live. Man must live. How casually broken. Tall, lanky man, hands clawed, yams dangling, and the sweet clubman's charm in your grin still, all those women slain by your arm. You stretch out your legs, tell your story slow, persistent as the crawl you made towards sunlight, the way you pulled your body upright, the way you made tender the toughness of hard men who would soon wash you, feed you with oily fingers full of mashed ackee and tomatoes who have held you against the night. Men, tough as teeth, men, hard men. Man must live, man must live. The virus prances through your blood, manages to tickle, make you laugh at a new sunny day. And yours is the posture of survival. I do want to become somebody in life. I do have my dreams. I'm not just going to let HIV shatter it for me. Writing for Live Hope Love was provided by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, Mac AIDS Fund, and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. This program was produced by Stephanie Gaia Stevens and Jack Chance for Outer Voices, featuring the poetry of Kwame Dawes and original interviews drawn from the Multimedia Reporting Project Hope. Living and Loving with HIV in Jamaica, produced by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Poetry and narration by Kwame Dawes. Original music composed by Kevin Simmons. Sound recordings were Natalie Applewhite, Stephen Sapienza, and Doug Gritzmacher. Mixing engineer was Jack Chance. Special thanks to Anisha Taylor, Dr. Peter Figueroa, Rosemary Stone, John Mazuka, Ruth Janke, Carla Legister, Lassels Graham, Winsome Keen Dawes, Gianluca Tramontana, and Sandra Goldburn. For more information on Live Hope Love, please visit livehopelove.com. To obtain a copy of a CD of this program, call Alter Voices at 415 497 0563 or email us at info at outervoices.org. For John Mazuka.